Alright, good morning. Good to see everybody. Uh, We're Romans chapter 10 today. This is lesson number 18 in the series. And we are, I, I guess, about two-thirds through the book of Romans. And I expect that the final third will move even faster than the, the first two did. Um, looking at it just from a chapter standpoint. Uh, chapter 11 next week we'll cover and, and it should conclude this section which deals mostly with Israel and today is no, no different of course in Romans chapter 10 there's a, a strong focus on uh, this uh, salvation today the gospel we talk about the gospel the good news uh, the Romans road to salvation God's plan for redemption of mankind uh, being saved by grace and through faith. If there's any topic that we cover more and more than any other, it's this salvation. And that's fitting. It's proper. It's what we should do. We can never tell the plan of salvation too many times, and we should continue to do that. But sadly, even with that mo- effort, most will reject the God's plan of salvation and die in their sins. And we're going to discover today that Israel was faced with that same dilemma. However, the biggest mistake that we could make in this room is to assume that this uh, problem applied directly to Israel or exclusively to Israel. Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 23 says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law of the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we should and we do recognize the direct context of Romans chapter 10. Uh, That is that Paul is concerning himself with his burden for Israel and their rejection of the gospel. But it'd be a grave mistake for us to not recognize that we have the same problem. There is no difference. So as we go through the lesson today, I I want you to think about the direct context of the chapter, and that is Paul's burden for Israel and their rejection of the gospel. That's what gets gets us here to Romans chapter 10. So make that your main focus, but if you can, in the back of your mind, keep the context of the the broader context, if you will, which is also direct, by the way, because of the scripture we're going to talk about at the very end and the conclusion, the broader context of how this applies to us as Gentiles. And it's just as true. The context is just as true for us. That's not always the case when we talk about context, is it? But here in this question of salvation and redemption, it absolutely is. So just keep that in mind as we go through the outline. Now, the chapter divides itself basically into three different sections. The first section uh, speaks of Israel and its need for the gospel. That's in verses 1 through 7. Then in verses 8 through 13, uh, we'll look at the requirements of the gospel. We'll come back to that at the end in the conclusion, by the way. And then in verses 14 through 21, we'll, we'll talk about Israel's rejection of the gospel. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 7 of chapter 10, and then we'll, we'll look at Israel's need for the gospel. 
Paul writes in chapter 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ, to bring Christ up from the dead. So, <clears throat> I understand the last two verses are a little confusing there. We won't spend a lot of time on those, but Paul begins talking about his earnest desire. Uh, Israel's need for the gospel and his earnest, Paul's earnest desire for his people. <clears throat> we saw that again uh, previously in chapter 9 where he opened that uh, chapter with the first couple of verses. In chapter 9 it said, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And here again, he, he repeats it in uh, not as dramatic fashion, but in chapter 10 and verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer is to God for Israel. So he's, we see this continual burden, burden for, for, from Paul for Israel. He is, he is concerned with them. He is burdened with them. Uh, and their rejection. What is ironic about that? Anybody, what, what was Paul's ministry? Who was he called to? To the Gentile. To the Gentile. Yeah, he was the, the chief apostle called to the Gentile. Not that any of them didn't have contact with Gentiles. They, I'm sure they all did, but Paul's ministry, his main ministry is a calling to the Gentile, but he has this burden nonetheless for Israel. And he, never, he, he seemed to never get rid of that. He always had it through his entire life from the point of salvation and going forward. And so he begins talking about that in his earnest desire. By the way, you know that is key to someone being saved. Oftentimes, it's someone's earnest desire for them. Somebody who will not let go. Somebody who won't quit praying. Somebody who will fast. Somebody who just is, is almost tormented until somebody else comes to Christ. Uh, it, it, you know, and, and it's rare to have a burden like that. If, if you're struggling with that and, and you have family members or friends that just won't seem to heed the gospel, uh, your prayer focus may, be, may need to be changed to yourself more than them. Pray for a, a greater burden. Pray that the Holy Spirit just will not let you rest until that person gets saved. And then uh, seek God on them. And then really uh, turn the, the prayer to them. Well, you can do what, that whatever you will. Uh, I didn't plan on saying that, but that was maybe just for somebody's uh, benefit. And then Paul talks about their eager ignorance. Israel just seems eager in their ignorance to continue in their ignorance. And he says... He continues the thought in verse 3 saying, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And that's key. 
the failure to submit to the righteousness. And he, and he talks about their, their zeal uh, later on. He talks about their, their zeal for God with, without knowledge. So he, he, is, he is referring to their, their just, and, and I put eager ignorance, but maybe willing ignorance is a, is a better way to state that. They just seem to uh, gravitate to it, to this denial of the Messiah, this rejection and this refusal in spite of all of the evidence. And that's one of the things that's ironic about salvation. Uh, it doesn't necessarily matter how much evidence is in front of a person Spiritual things are always spiritually revealed. Until the Holy Spirit reveals truth, until they submit to that Spirit and accept that truth, regardless of the amount of evidence that you may pile in front of them, uh, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. We should. We should always be willing to give an answer and a testimony. We should be prepared to do that. That's our responsibility as part of the Great Commission. But far beyond that, we need to pray, 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 and, and fast and bring people before the Lord so that the Holy Spirit will do his, his work in their lives. And until they submit unto that, it really doesn't matter how much evidence is there. Uh, I could say a lot about that, but we're going to continue on for sake of time. And then he talks about Christ is the end of the law. That's in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And this was Israel's big stumbling block, wasn't it? it it's this reluctance to let go of the law, the, the, the Hebrew law. Why do you think that was such a problem for Israel? Any ideas? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. I'm 100% I'm in agreement with that answer. They are steeped in it from birth. And it goes even beyond their birth to whomever. Well, also economically. Also. Yes. It's like cultural, economically. It's ingrained in their economics, that's the, uh, the, the sacrifice system and everything. Uh, then it, it's ingrained in their his, historical significance. It goes all the way back to Abraham. And so when Abraham becomes Israel, and Jacob, after him, becomes Israel. How much of the Bible is written? Zero, right? And so what do they come up learning? This, this inheritance of the sacrificial system. And then Moses comes along, and what is the first thing that's written of Scripture? The Pentateuch, right? The first five books. And, and that contains what? The law. And so it is, it is instilled in their very history and their, and, and their culture and their economics and, and everything that they know and that they hold dear and hang on to. So we can understand a little bit, if we you know, we'll open our minds to that, what a stumbling block, this stumbling block this becomes for the nation of Israel. It's not insurmountable. But we know that because how many did overcome it. But Paul recognizes, and he's correct in doing so, to saying that this is the problem. Ironically, built into the writing of the law is the promise of what in the future? The Messiah. And, and, and with that promise comes certain prophetical truths that had to be met, prophetical standards, if you will, 
And how many of those did Christ satisfy? All of them, 100%. And yet, the rejection remains. And this is what Paul is uh, so gifted at and, and masterful at in pointing out. And oftentimes, we'll read in Acts where they, they were angry at him because he proved that Jesus is them. Not that he tried to prove it, but that he proved that Jesus was the Messiah. And they hated that. Why? Because it didn't fit in their, in their way of thinking. So again, it, they failed to submit to it. And, and he talks about that. That's kind of what he's alluding to, what he's stating in verse 6 and 7. You, you don't change um, what is true to, to, to suit you, to make it fit your idea. Who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? We're not going to redo that. We're not going to rewrite it for you because you don't like it. It is, it is given. It is what it is. Likewise, verse 8, but uh, what does it say? The, the, word, uh, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart that the word of faith which we preach. In other words, grab onto this truth, verse 8, which leads us into our next section, the requirements of the gospel. So he's going to talk about the requirements of the gospel. Now, throughout this lesson series i told you to note the 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 verses that are the romans road and we run into the final uh, verses here in chapter 10 uh, if you didn't get all those don't worry because at the conclusion of the lesson we're going to go back through that romans road and i'll put all those verses up for you if you want to jot down the references but here in the second section verses 8 through 13 He's going to talk about the requirements of the gospel. So let's read those. Verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him who will not be, uh, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there's two requirements, and only two when we read this. And the first one is confession with one's mouth. I get very concerned, and this is just me reading scripture, I get very concerned when this confession with the mouth is not a part of the salvation plan. Why? Because I read it here in Romans and in other places in scripture. I don't know why we have, I don't even know why at the invitation times we tell everybody to bow their head and close their eyes. For sake of embarrassment is what we always say, and I understand we're trying to be polite, but if you're that embarrassed, there's a problem. It's time to submit. It's time to be embarrassed of your own condition and your own sin. And it's time to submit to the gospel. And I'm not saying that one cannot be saved in those conditions. I don't, please don't read into this. I'm not being judgmental. But I'm telling you, the scripture says that confession with the mouth is part of salvation. That is key. The confession with the mouth. Read it again with me. Oh. Uh, Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. 
So that's the very first part. That's the first standard. It, it's this verbal confession of the Lord Jesus. And, and I don't think it's important. You don't need to confess it to me. You don't need to confess it to anyone but Him. But if other people are around and you're too afraid to speak, there's a problem. If, if you just think, well, I just always had a good feeling in my heart, there's a problem according to Scripture. Not according to my opinion, but according to what I just read in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, confession with the mouth. Has anybody in here ever gone to the marriage altar and just had warm, funny feelings and not said anything about it? And that was satisfactory. I don't think so. I hope not. There was a confession. There was an oath. There were vows. Hopefully, you know. <laughs> Maybe at least you shook hands on the deal, I hope. But, but no, there's a confession, right? Same here. All right, so that's point number one. It's a confession with the mouth. We'll talk more about this. Number two, a belief in one's heart. But when we say this, let's be careful. It's not just a, a, a casual belief or a, a broad belief. There's a specific belief. Again, in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, he's the focus, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. So belief in what about Jesus? His resurrection. That's key. Okay, so if we're believing his resurrection, what are we also believing? In his death. And if we believe that, why did he die? For your sin. That, I mean, that, those are assumed. And they're not just assumed because that's already mentioned in previous verses in Romans. So Paul's not just pulling this out of the blue. Remember, this is all one epistle he's writing. So all this he's already covered. So this belief that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that was the reason, and that he resurrected. Did Paul say anything about understanding that? I didn't read that. A belief in your heart. So to the best of your ability, just accept it. There's stuff I don't understand that I believe. And you, and you as well. Some of it's very simple. I know very little about how electricity makes that bulb burn. But when I got here this morning, I flipped that little switch over there in full faith that at least some of these lights were going to come on so you could get a look at me this morning. See? So we, we, we do this all the time. We don't recognize it. But here the, the, the belief is seated in upon the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Third section, verses 14 through 21, is Israel's rejection of the gospel. Let's read those verses, beginning in 14. How then shall they call on him who they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him on whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. 
Their sound has gone out of all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest by those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have searched out my hands. I'm sorry, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So when he begins this, he talks about the preaching. And when you first begin this section, you think, well, Paul's making this, this plea for more preachers to bring more of the gospel. And I'm sure maybe there's a part of it, but it's really not the focus. He just simply talks about how there's a need for the preaching to go out uh, and how blessed that is that those preachers carry forth the gospel. And, and when he says preacher here, he doesn't mean a, 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 some, someone whose vocation it is necessarily. Uh, you should be a preacher of the gospel. I should be a preacher of the gospel. When any believer should be a preacher of the gospel. You should go for, You should tell people about the, the preaching of the gospel. And certainly some, that is their calling and their vocation and their spiritual gift, and they should do that on a full-time basis. But we all, to an extent, should be a preacher of the gospel. And this is what Paul's talking about when he begins, but he very quickly turns from the preaching to the hearing. And he states that, and really right out, that Israel has been preached to. But they've refused to hear. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Verse 18, but I say, have they not heard? It is rhetorical. Has Israel not heard? Have they not had opportunity? Did Israel have more opportunity than anybody to, to accept the gospel? I say yes. I admit the obstacle, but they had the Pentateuch. They had the prophets. They had all that within their nation. They were given the oracles of God, as Paul told us earlier. And yet... With all of that truth, with all of that evidence, with all of the, the prophecies concerning the Messiah, and, their, and, and, and the Messiah is, is born in their nation and lives amongst them, fulfilling all of the prophecies, and yet they reject the truth. They refuse to hear the preaching that was sent to them. See? And, and so Paul does not excuse that. Remember when we started the lesson, our focus, the direct context is what? Israel's rejection of the God, of the righteousness of God. And this is what he's talking about here. It's not that the preachers did not go out, they did. It's not that the blessed feet weren't available, they were. But Israel heard it and chose to reject it. And so this is what he's talking about. He talks about the preaching. And then he talks about the hearing, and then he talks about the heeding. And, and that's what he, he sums up here with verses 18 through 21. They're, they're refusing to heed. Well, heed what? Did you know? Look in your Bibles. If you have a, a, a Bible that, uh, 
Mine has, has a lot of quotations and italics in it. Anybody else see that in the scripture? What does that tell you? Yeah, yes, yes. So Paul's not writing something new here. He's reaching back and he even names the authors, does he? He talks about Moses, does he not? And, and he talks about Isaiah, I believe. And, and, and he says, this, do you not remember that they said these things? And so it's not that Israel was not given the opportunity. They were given the truth. From, from as far back as Moses, as far as I know, the oldest biblical writer, maybe uh, whoever wrote Job, and maybe that was Moses, I don't know, but, but as far back as they can document, Moses is writing and telling to, to be watching out for these truths and for this Messiah. Isaiah, uh, he says, talks about it. And so Israel, uh, verse 19 again, but I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, he says, and he gives all that Moses warned them about. And then he, verse 20, he goes on and says, but Isaiah is very bold and says. So in other words, Moses told you, and that was enough, but then Isaiah comes on the scene, and he's even more bold than Moses. And he tells you again, Israel, and you reject, and you turn. We as Christians should not get arrogant in that. We should not get. We should be saddened by that. We should be burdened for those who reject. So Paul recognized that the majority of Israel, those whom he loved and lived among, had a false sense of security. This this zeal without knowledge, without knowledge of God's righteousness. And in a sense, Paul understood this perfectly because who was he before salvation? Yeah, he's the epitome of this, is he not? Did Paul Paul had this the, the greatest zeal for God, but without knowledge, without righteousness. And so Paul is not mocking and he's not looking, he's he's really burdened because he understands the problem. And and he 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 says this, and he and he sees he he he's able to perfectly describe himself in, in his encounter on the road to Damascus when he wrote a zeal for God, but not according to righteousness. So, how is one to know if he or she is all right with God? Because Paul, do you think he before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, did Paul think that he was right with God? He absolutely did. He thought, if anybody's going to heaven, it's me. I'm the number one Pharisee student. I'm, I'm the rookie of the year. You know, I'm sitting at the feet of the Gamaliel, the best teacher we have. I'm privileged. I have dual citizenship. I have money. I have the best assignment. I'm in the best place. Everything's going my way. So Paul understands, and he, and he feels it, and he thinks he's perfectly in line with what he should be doing and he is zealous extremely zealous so he felt okay secondly the current religious authorities authorized and even commissioned Paul in what he was doing so none of the leading religious groups recognized the need in Paul's life either they all patted him on the back and told him he's going he's doing great 
I mean, the Sadducees would disagree with his doctrine, but they weren't trying to stop him from destroying the church. The Pharisees thought, man, he's our guy. He's our shining star. So he felt okay. The religious authority told him he was okay. And so the only way to know if one is right with God or not is to examine oneself by the word of God. And this is what we're going to look at now using the Romans road. Assuming I can pull it up on my little slideshow here. It's another tab probably. Like look to the left. I just had this. You have it up on a tie. It's the first time. There we go. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> Eyeballs don't work well. <laughs> Romans Road. So I know that you're familiar with this. I know that you've seen it. I know that I've taught it, but I want to go through it again. And I encourage you to make notes of this in your scriptures. To have it ready at, uh, at the go. I encourage you to memorize it. This is something you should have. This is a tool that you should have in witnessing. Because I don't care what situation you run into, the Romans' road will answer. Again, Paul and these other Israelites think they're, they feel like they're okay. It's a grave mistake to go by feelings. Feelings are important. They're a part of who we are. But they're, they're not good to set your doctrine by. They're not a great compass. They're a horrible compass. Feelings are not what it's made up of. So let's go through this. Romans 10, uh, Romans 3, verses 10 and 23. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now understand, we're just pulling out individual verses. Are there contexts that we're not considering that are surrounding these verses? Yes, but we're not taking them out of their context. Understand that. These are what we might, we might label standalone verses. In other words, you can pull them out and quote them, and they, they, they maintain their context when they're quoted. All right? And again, we started, these are written directly concerning the church at Rome. And, and a lot of it specifically aimed at Israelites. But again, standalone, and they, they work just as well with any Gentile. So for any person walking the face of the earth, Romans 3.10 says, as it is written. That's key. It's not what we're thinking. It's not what we're making up. It's what's written. It's what the Bible says. It's what the Word of God says. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. It's all inclusive. Everyone on the face of the earth needs this. Somebody tells you, don't judge me, point this verse out and say, I'm not. It's for everyone. I don't have to judge. It's written. I'm not making a determination. God did. Verse 323 says, For all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. So I, I, I highlighted that word, or I bold, put in bold that word fall, because it's like we're all trying to reach a certain goal, but you're going to fall. You're not going to finish the race outside of the glory of God. You're not going to do this on your own righteousness. First, it's, it's all inclusive. Then we go to Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, and here's the problem. Here's why we fall. Here's why there's a problem. It's sin for the wages of sin. What you earn, what you deserve, what your sin buys you is death. Separation from God. Eternal death. Not physical death. We understand that. But the gift of God is eternal life 
<coughs> excuse me, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the avenue. Eternal life how? Only through Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't care what Oprah says, there's not many ways. There's one way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. According to what God wrote in His Bible. Again, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter my opinion. It doesn't matter how many times I say it. God said it and said it once. And that settles it. Whether it's accepted or not. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And while we're still, still in our sin... How many of your sins have been committed when Jesus went to the cross? Zero. 2,000 years ago, right? And he, he died for me knowing I would be born a sinner and that I would live as a, a sinner until the time of salvation. He, he knew I would sin even beyond salvation. Why did he do that? Because of what we just talked about. It's, it's the only way, it was my only hope. I go backwards. Yeah. For the wages of sin is death. He knew that I had that problem. He knew I fell short. So why did he go ahead and die for me even when I was his enemy? Because he loved me. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The solution found in Romans chapter 10, which is what we've just been talking about this morning. Verse 9 and 10, that if you will confess with your mouth, there it is again, confess with your mouth. This is a verbal confession. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart. It's not always just feeling like things are okay because you have a belief in God. The Bible says that Satan also believes and he trembles. It's not a, a belief in his existence. It's not a belief that he walked the earth. It's, it's not a belief in any of those things. It's a belief in his death, burial, and resurrection. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And, and I love the assurity of these verses. It's not a, you'll feel saved. It's not, you can hope you're saved. It, you will be saved. Verse 10, for with the heart... One believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. I love that Paul states it and restates it. This is very clear, folks. There is a confession and a belief. They work hand in glove. They are not separate. Verses 11 and 12. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. The same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. It makes no difference who you are. I don't care how bad of a sinner you are. I've talked to them. I've seen murderers saved. Rapists. It, it matters not. Even lawyers. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but I'm not kidding at the same time. It doesn't matter who you are. How good, how bad. How different your skin color, your dialect, your language. I don't care about any of that. Salvation is through the Lord Jesus Christ to all and for all. And then finally, verse 13 of chapter 10. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. Confession, belief, working hand in glove. That's the gospel, folks. It's that simple. And yet, people miss it. Israel missed it. Why? They refused. They rejected to submit. And I'm willing to bet that 90% of the time, those who are not saved, that's the problem. You got to swallow your pride. You got to admit that you're a sinner and verbally confess it. Call upon, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in his resurrection. You will be saved. That's it. Pure and simple. Have you done that? Do you know? Can you look back to a time when you can, in your mind's eye, see that time and that place? And I don't care if you remember the date, the address. I'm, but can you remember a time? Does the Holy Spirit take you back to a place when you did this? You recognize you are a sinner without hope and you verbally confessed it and called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not my plan, folks. It's His. And that is the standard of salvation. And if you're relying upon anything other than that, I fear that you are not saved. And I love you to death. I don't want that from any of you. I'm going to close with this. We had a dear lady in the church. How many of y'all know Jennifer Campbell that goes to church here, married to Brent? Her, her sweet mother, Elaine. Do you remember Elaine? Elaine Wilson. We went to church with them uh, at the, our last church at New Haven Baptist. And for years, Miss Elaine sang in the choir and she, and she played piano and she did all kinds of things in the church, worked with the children. She was always just so sweet and polite and she brought good homemade dishes to the dinners and everything. You, you just thought model Christian. You know, she married old Billy and got him off his Harley and he's got to, and they made a great family and she was a good mother and all these things. And at one point in her life, she recognized she had not done this and went to go see our pastor, Bill Broom, and his wife, Joyce, and almost had to just get rude with him to go through the gospel because they were just, no, Miss Elaine, surely not you. We know you. But folks, the Holy Spirit spoke to her and she recognized she had not done this. And there in their living room, she confessed herself a sinner and called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and she was saved then and not before. See, don't go to hell hanging on to your pride. If you've not done this, follow Him in His plan of salvation. Come talk to me. I don't have any, I don't ever have anything more important than that, and, and we'll we'll kneel together. I'll I'll go down with you. Don't go to hell because of your silly pride. I love you. Get out of here. I'll see you next week.